Welcome to Building LA, a podcast about the buildings and projects shaping the future of Los Angeles, hosted by me, Sam Pepper. I'm a licensed architect, developer, and project manager specializing in large, complex projects. And as you can probably tell, I'm not a lifelong Angelino. I moved here in 2019, and I'm just fascinated and very curious about the projects shaping this city, and I'd like to learn more. Each episode of Building LA features conversations with the industry leaders driving those projects forward. We talk about what inspires them, the stories behind these impactful projects, and discuss what continues to excite us all about working in design, architecture, and real estate in Los Angeles. Please subscribe to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. And if you have a minute, please write us a review. We really appreciate it, and we'd like to hear from you. Now, on to the episode. Los Angeles is, of course, an incredibly distinct city, defined by a multitude of factors, but primarily the flats, hills, ocean, and yes, of course, the highways. It's a city that is both loved and loathed, a place that can be a utopia and a dystopia in equal measure, that has been written about endlessly by the likes of fellow Englishman Rainer Bannum, Mike Davis, and many others. Understanding Los Angeles takes time, decades potentially, and so I was very excited to have the guest for today's episode join the show. Ryan Lovett is someone I worked with early in my career at Shop Architects in New York. Incredibly curious and rigorous in his work, as you will hear in this episode, Ryan is so much fun to talk to about urbanism and architecture because he simply lives and breathes it. Ryan works for Blendlease, a multinational Australian company, as their head of design for the Americas. In this episode, he'll explain how he transitioned from working as an architect to development, key relationships that helped his career, and the responsibilities he now has in his national role. The project we are focusing on today is one I'm most excited about that is currently in progress in Los Angeles. It's called 3401 South La Cienega, and most people in LA will be familiar with its site. It's adjacent to the La Cienega Jefferson Metro Station, the large cumulus development by Carmel Partners, and along a route many people coming to and from the airport from central LA will be very familiar with. Shop Architects, who I will disclose is my former employer, is leading the design, and the project features apartments, offices, and retail. It's one of the projects in that area which is taking advantage of the density bonus incentives to create more residential units, and the area is set to continue its evolution with more high-density projects currently in planning. As with all developments, there are people that are concerned about the burden on adjacent transportation infrastructure, but at the same time, there are others who think that this area should go further with greater density in order to help support the Herculean effort to mitigate the housing shortage affecting Los Angeles. Whatever your view, I hope you enjoy the conversation, and please email me your thoughts at sam at buildinglapodcast.com. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to the Building LA podcast. We're happy to have you. Thanks for having me, Sam. Good to be here. I'm just going to dive straight in. So I want to start with your upbringing in Los Angeles. I'm always curious what leads people to be pursuing a career in architecture, real estate. So you grew up in LA. Can you talk a little bit about what neighborhood you grew up in and uh, whether there was anyone in your family who 
gave you an interest in the real estate industry? Absolutely. Being a native Angelino is very much part of my identity. And while I spent time outside of the city to, for the professional parts of my education, the better part of, uh, you know, 14 years away after graduating from high school, uh, plus, I always had an intention of coming back. That's primarily because I just have a very emotional connection to this geography, to this place. Uh, and it's very much an unusual one, especially as someone who claims, you know, I'm a self-proclaimed urbanist and someone that is interdisciplinary in my, in my approach and practice and worldview and that I'm both a real estate professional an architect, you know, licensed architect, uh, a certified urban planner. And, you know, I dabble in all the other various things, creative endeavors. And my connection with LA started ultimately by growing up in the mountains and overlooking the city. And while I say it's city, it's, it's sort of not a city. It's really a collection of smaller communities that as an aggregate is sort of something other than a city. And we talk about that as megalopolis. We talk about that in a variety of ways, but I really feel there's something truly unique about this region as a, both a prototype for, you know, all the various things we talk about, capitalist Western development, but really more so on a bringing it home. It's unique because of its geography. It's unique because of its relationship to the sky, to the ocean to the fact that we have are surrounded and inscribed by mountains, that it's this moment in time where it's reached its geographic limits for the first time. And I find that just growing up here, there would be these wonderful experiences you might have visiting a friend in their backyard or you're at a party and you're experiencing something very episodic, very being invited into people's personal worlds. And the experience of the city is through that, right? That, that's how a lot of the common conception, you know, the houses hanging off the cliffs overlooking this, the flatlands. And that's the architectural part of the city and something I, I very much can identify with when I was a young kid. But as soon as you start driving or even as you're going between places, going to school, going, you know, to a restaurant, going wherever it is, all of a sudden there's this other experience. And it's an experience of this geography. It's an experience of a continuous kind of streaming through a landscape. So it, in a sense, it's so distinct from places like New York, which is its own animal and its own sort of idiosyncratic, quirky, American-European hybrid. L.A. is something decidedly different. So you left L.A. to go study at UC Berkeley, and you got a degree in architecture and environmental design. LA's obviously had a large influence on your career. At that young age, did you feel like you had a clear vision of what you wanted to accomplish in architecture or real estate? Or were you open-minded to what you might be interested in in college? I was always very interested in all of the creative arts and endeavors and also happened to be kind of just hungry for knowledge of all sorts. So I liked math. I liked science. I liked biology. I liked everything. And I, and I spent a lot of time as a young kid in other parts of the world visiting. And 
some things that I was exposed to, the master builders in Europe, uh, the notion that there are these Renaissance people that can do a lot of things really well. And it's the fact that they can do them all well and that there's some synergy of them becomes really interesting. So I always aspired to very almost naively at a young age, want envision myself in that realm and try to chase that through various means through, uh, you know, higher education, whether that uh, UC Berkeley, the College of Environmental Design is a wonderful school, a wonderful program. Uh, and what makes it unique, I think, again, is the co- it is the College of Environmental Design. It's all encompassing. They think about everything from, you know, powers of 10, the universe down to the, the world, down to the way in which we carve up geography to regional planning to you know down to the architectural level down to the bolt level down to the utensil level right that there is no difference whereas i think you might see in other programs uh, in certain pedagogies throughout the ages um, a bit more of a distinct kind of education around architecture being architecture the act of building buildings and so I think that education at, at UC Berkeley was really valuable in putting practical and a theoretical uh, sort of underpinning or, or background to the way that I look at the world. So clearly, it seems like you made the most of sort of the bounty of ideas and people that were at Berkeley in both in doing architecture, but also pursuing a dual degree in environmental design. I've always been a pretty huge proponent of architecture as a really really good degree as an undergrad because i think it exposes you to such a breadth of different disciplines and allows you to form a really interesting perspective on the world but i do think that the direction you take after undergrad can be influenced quite a bit by who exactly you were learning from so i'm curious if there were any mentors that you had at Berkeley that you've that you found influential in your early days and maybe you kept in touch with I don't know since since yeah then. absolutely um, I, I think having mentors is something that happens organically you can't manufacture it always but when you get them you latch on to them and, and it's really important to try to hold on to them and I was lucky enough to really befriend two different professors one of whom I worked with for a year during school in his practice in San Francisco, as well as another that was ultimately a painter and a really unique individual that that taught me how to see, taught me how to think about what it is that I'm looking at and to be holding up a mirror to myself to raise my self-consciousness about the act of making the act of creating. And so the first uh, guy that I mentioned that I worked with in, in downtown San Francisco uh, was Mike McCall, and he's had a practice in the Bay Area for over 30 years. He really, I think, created a environment for me that just, there was sort of, you could be truly fearless. There was never a dumb question. There was never a dumb inquiry. He gave me a long leaf as a, effectively as an intern to kind of do whatever I wanted. And I'm sure I fell flat on my face a couple times getting in front of clients, pitching you know, ideas to like Nike at the time we were doing Nike town headquarters all, you know, in Chicago and San Francisco. And it was a lot of fun. And I think just having that positive environment as 
what an extreme contrast to to what many people experience when they first enter the industry as a professional, which is you are predominantly ground down, working crazy hours and you know all of the trappings and and the broken aspects of our profession as in in the architectural sense. This was really different experience, and I felt you know very nurtured and that blurring of academic and professional, you know, in early, early in my career at Cal was amazing. I love that. And I think the example you use of, of Mike McCall as, a, as an early mentor resonates with me because when I had early internships, I was surprised by my company at the time, which was Lake Flato down in San Antonio, putting me in front of clients. And I knew at the time wow, this is a little bit of a risk that you're taking, putting me in front of a client. And you're talking about being put in front of Nike. It shows that A, they have confidence in you, but also it demonstrates very clearly like the important fundamental of architecture and design is storytelling. And if you can't translate your design to someone who isn't collaborating with you directly, you can't get off to the races. And it's unfortunately, I understand why it's not an opportunity that's given to everyone. But unfortunately, a lot of architects do start in these corporate roles where it takes months, if not years, to actually be in the room with a client being able to talk about the design. And I think there's those are to a certain extent lost years where you could be growing. So good on Mike for for letting you letting you do that. Well, I would say to that, which is sometimes you kind of need to get out there and just put yourself out there, so to speak. I remember as a 17-year-old driving through Hayden Tract and being awestruck by the work of Eric Owen Moss, just these unbelievably amazing, exuberant, bizarre architectures, right? And if for those that don't know, this is a, an architect who's been working with effectively his patron, Samatar, for, for 30 plus years and transforming this uh, post-industrial sort of warehouse district that used to have a lot of rail lines and oil and all, there's all kinds of things, Culver City adjacent area, basically repositioning these buildings to attract tech tenants. And it sort of, in some senses, is the precursor or the the, the predecessor of um, you know all the things we're seeing in the in that area transform so radically, but I remember going and signing up for some sort of AIA tour of that area and ended up talking to the tour guide, is gentleman named Dolan Daggett, who's still there at Eric Owen Moss, I believe, and just kept asking him really annoying questions. And eventually he, I don't know what it was, but he's like, what do you do? What do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I just really like architecture and I just find this stuff so interesting. And he's like, why don't you come by the office and, and show me your portfolio? And at the time, you know, I was getting ready to go to school and I knew I kind of want to do architecture, but not really. And uh, I ended up, you know, like a week later going in there with my portfolio, terrified and <laughs> dropping it off. And then a little bit later, I ended up getting an internship there. So I, I kind of just you know, being precocious, kind of just going out there and just sometimes you can kind of engineer something just by by showing up and uh, putting yourself out there. It's so true. And I think people really respect that. People that just show up, have the gumption to do it. And there is really no age limit to that, right? You can be 17. And as long as you're showing you're willing and interested, there's room for you. It's interesting that Eric Owen Moss was 
the architect that kind of inspired you as a teenager because it, it's so clear to me like that would be the kind of architecture that would be exciting to a young teenager because it is so fanciful and crazy and out of this world and it shows the kind of possibility. I want to move to to New York because you graduated in 2008 obviously not a great time uh, to graduate uh, for the job market. And then you went to Columbia, where you pursued a master's in architecture and a master of science in real estate development. I'm curious if moving to New York was the primary goal here. No, New York in and of itself was not. However, I would say there's those age-old expressions, I'm sure coined by Folks like Frank Sinatra would say, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. That was not part of my consciousness at the time, truly, honestly. It seemed to me at that time a different world. I understood at least what I felt at the time of uh, the culture of architecture, the culture of architectural design, AEC, on the West Coast as a young guy, as much as one could, coming out of uh, Berkeley and then spending time a little bit afterwards in LA. I felt I wanted to try something different. I wanted to expand my horizons, my network in particular, and to go to a part of the world that was doing things in a fundamentally different way. And so I looked at Boston, I looked at New York, great schools over there, but I I did have an experience prior to grad school as a young professional, almost like in a junior designer role. I was working on a project in Dallas, uh, Reunion Tower, it was renovation. And it was, I think there was like Wolfgang Puck was going in the top of this weird ball. You know, it was just as one does sort of a, a, a weird John Portman building, you know, just this kind of brutalist thing. And what was amazing is that I can't even remember who the client was at the time, but the way they structured the design teams. And I've just found it so fascinating. They had like multiple scopes, multiple disciplines, landscape architects, architects, all kind of like in a very messy fashion sort of stepping over each other and then there would be these client meetings and you present the ideas and everyone would sort of be jockeying to to impress the client and I just thought that dynamic was really interesting and the first thing I asked myself was why is that person who is that person that's making the that's able to make those decisions that's allowed to make those decisions of what's good what's bad what what will happen what will not happen I just find it so intriguing that the amount of power that they had and I felt, well, what makes them qualified to be able to do that? And I think it, it was it was truly a recognition that, A, I would love to be able to be in that seat, to be able to enact the visions, the grandiose ideas they used to have, but also more fundamentally, the, the latter, which is what makes them qualified? Like, why are they there? Who gave them that authority? And are they the right people to make that decision? And and almost always, I think, after you know many years in New York uh, practicing and working around the world, I would say that almost always the folks that are making those decisions are probably not the best equipped people to make those decisions. And so I spent a lot of energy, not jumping ahead too much here, thinking about, well, how do you get to be in that position and to take a broader view and to take a more holistic view, a more integrated view, a more empathetic view when you're making these big consequential decisions about what will shape generations to come when you're designing a building or designing a precinct or you're designing a master plan. So I knew when I was going to the Northeast, I was looking for something very particular, which was 
you know, I just came off of four years of studio. I did a bunch of summer camps as an architecture nerd would. I went to New York knowing I wanted to study architecture and something else. I knew I needed to get a professional degree. I needed an MRC. I always had an intention on getting licensed. Uh, it took me a little longer than I would have liked, but I did get licensed. And uh, the part that I knew I wanted to chase was something related to real estate. And so there's a lot of programs out there. The caveat was, you know, you have a decision to make if you're thinking about getting outside of the normal design field education. There's typically two types. There's an MBA, which is, you know, a true generalist's education of administering business. Typically two-year degree, you learn everything. You could run Coca-Cola or GM when you're done. doesn't matter what product or widgets you're making. You could do it all. And then there's another type of education, which is the applied. And I know, Sam, you've done this at MIT, which is, uh, you know, is a great school as well. There's the applied sort of master of science approach. And what distinguished MIT and uh, Columbia's programs was that they both sat within the design school. So they are part of this ecosystem around applied concepts of ground up development of the built environment compared to I can go and run Coca-Cola. And so I was attracted to that. I sought those two schools out. I ended up picking Columbia because of uh, I did this sort of calculation in my head. There's a hundred. It's a very big school compared to MIT in the in the number of folks uh, in each class. I wanted to be around a lot of people. I wanted to have a huge network and just meet all these people and stay in touch with them over time. And so I factored, I'm in two different degrees. That's a hundred people in each class times three and a half years. You know, that's quite a number of people that you end up uh, coming across and crossing paths with uh, when you're done. And I can't speak highly enough of uh, the MSRED program at Columbia, just the, you know, the camaraderie, the the culture, you know, the the way people help each other out over the years. It's been really cool. I would say, you know, I, I had two very different experiences um, at Columbia and both of them interesting pros and cons, but the architectural education was very studio-based, very um, individual, like not, not a lot of group studios, sort of felt a little bit in, in an old mold of almost like you're tr being trained to be the heroic genius, you know, sort of your ideas are brilliant and it's all about sort of storytelling in a vacuum to kind of bring back where you were going earlier about, you know, the, the value of the education you get as an architect. I would say what was so interesting about the the, the real estate development program, by contrast, was everything was group-based. Everything had to be a negotiation. Everything had to be a process to come up with something. You touch on something that is a frustration with me regarding the traditional architecture education, which is still to this day, I think, a focus on individual practice and the genius architect, which we all know is really a myth at this point, with some few exceptions. I and you clearly benefited a lot from a multidisciplinary education that was looking at the built environment more holistically than a traditional architecture education. I'm curious what your point of view is on whether architectural education should fundamentally include more education on business and how buildings actually get financed, entitlements, city approvals, the basics of how we actually get projects 
underway in cities. Because right now, with some exceptions, most architecture programs don't focus on that. And I can see both sides of the argument here, but I'm curious where you land and thinking whether that would be a benefit to include that in architectural education across the country. The short answer is yes, but I would say the caveat being that not everyone needs to go out and become some hybrid professional, an expert in capital markets or real estate finance by any stretch. I would think at a minimum, it would simply be the same way that you take law for architects, right? Like there's a sort of introduction to contracts, there's an introduction to the concepts. There should be an introduction to running a practice. There should be an introduction to understanding what a contractor goes through or the way things are built, you know, means and methods. There should be something on uh, how capital works in, in realizing buildings, right? Just there should be something early on in the education that exposed you at a survey level at minimum to be able to do that. We've been having a lot of interesting, newsworthy, notable debates in some of the major institutions around the role of the architect and these sort of false choices, in my humble opinion, between that of, you know, sort of laying down and saying, I am a monk committed to design and design for its own sake, or I have to make money by joining this corporate kind of behemoth. I think that's a false discussion. And perhaps some of the stuff we were talking about might be able to break that divide a bit, that everything is a design challenge, a design opportunity. It's not form making for its own sake. It's not process and delivery for its own sake. It needs to be in service of larger goals. But I think the real punchline here is that it's acknowledging that there's change afoot. And what we do with it, if I fast forwarded and I use my crystal ball where I think it's going, puts um, quite a bit of more influence on folks like me sitting in this role as client that it's all about the brief, right? That it's all about what are your objectives and how you can ask the right questions. Something that shop architects, I know, plugging, you know, the, the, their amazing process, that is something both you and I learned, I'm sure. How you can ask the right question will lead you to the answer. You ask the right question back to your client. I think it, where it intersects with artificial intelligence, and I use that word delicately, but machine learning is that let's just say the production of construction documents is automated. The production of drawing sets is automated. It's all models. It's all real time. It's all, you know, you just extrapolate. Then it becomes of a question of, well, what am I doing? How quickly can I do it? How much money can I make doing it maybe? Or how beautiful is it going to be? How sustainable is it going to be? So then it really is about you conducting all of these various things and being able to distill it down and coach a process along the way. And, and so it, in many senses, maybe the future of our industry starts to look more like that, which is an exciting place to be. I think you bring up some a lot of really interesting points, and I could not agree more that as we move forward with this new technology, the brief and the input that the client has only becomes more and more important. And you touched on shop architects, which I want to go to now. We both joined that company in our early to mid-20s, I believe. I think you joined in 2012, if I've got my facts correct. And I want you to paint the picture for our listeners about what that company was like back in 2012, because 
it fundamentally changed the trajectory of my career. And I think it was a pretty amazing place to be at that time. So I'm curious to hear, in your words, kind of what the influence was, and maybe just paint the picture for our listeners about what the environment was like at that time. Absolutely. I would say, first and foremost, I was actually interning for the first year at Shop Architects 2012. I was still at Columbia, wrapping up my second degree uh, in real estate. And I, through that process, ended up meeting uh, Vishan Chakrabarty, who was the dean of the real estate school at the time. And he had just announced that he had become partner at Shop Architects. Automatically, I already loved Shop. I already loved the work they were doing. But the fact that he had just joined, it felt extremely interesting at the time. I think the context is important because everything I'm about to say about what had happened, uh, it, it gives context to it. So they had just completed Barclays Center, right? This was something that circa the great uh, financial crisis, the GFC of 2007, 2008, Frank Geary had come up with a master plan for Atlantic Yards, this vision for this incredible arena and these buildings that were dependent on its construction surrounding it, multifamily and commercial and all these kinds of things. And that plan ultimately died in the great financial crisis. It was too expensive to build. It was sort of unfazable. And so the and yet it was one of these amazing big city projects that was subject to eminent domain and you know the government threw its weight around. And so there was a real pressure to get something done. And so they needed something done quickly and without getting t- deep into the bowels of that history of that project, which is amazing. Basically, Shop Architects uh, was pulled in to sort of pull a rabbit out of the hat, so to speak, that they designed a solution for an arena that could be built uh, without anything else being dependent on it in an incredibly short period of time. And as soon as that thing dropped, that's, you know, there's a point in an architectural firm's trajectory where if they ever are lucky enough to get to the point where an end value of one of their projects exceeds $1 billion, all, I mean, it, it, all kinds of people come out of the woodwork starting to call you up and saying, hey, can you look at this for me? Or you're, you're playing in a different stratosphere at that point, right? And so that happened to them. Vishan joins all of a sudden, there's just unbelievable momentum uh, of new projects. And this was also as the economy in the world started to come roaring back. And so when I joined, I think it was about nearly 70 people. And it had been around that size, plus or minus. That was the biggest it had been. But it was a little bit steady at that point. Within the first year, 18 months of me joining, it tripled in size. And so for an architecture firm, you know, where you have a culture, you have a DNA that's that's of a certain size, and then it triples. I mean, it is all kinds of things you see. It, it was extremely exciting. You know, I worked really hard. I was an overachiever. I think I personally, you know, no one ever told me to stay there really late, but I ended up doing it because I had just come out of school and I was had all of my priorities and work-life balance out of whack. But I loved it. So ultimately, shop really was a, a really interesting incubator in many senses, you know, where there's a lot of different folks with different backgrounds. They're all predominantly architects, but they come from all stripes where there is no single process. There is no dogma. There is no style. You know, it's not like you're making red brick buildings or you're making faux homages to earliest 20th century or so on and so forth. This is, it was really process-driven, technology-enabled, unique 
place and really a competition of ideas in many senses, right? A competition of multiple processes. You work with different folks, they have different ways of approaching things. And the biggest legacy I feel, or the biggest value I got now that I'm looking back on it, I've been out of there for a little over three and a half years now, really is the culture of asking the right questions to bring that back and shredding. And I know shredding is something that's so much part of architectural education. At shop, it was putting things on the wall, cashing out ideas, sketching over things. Doesn't matter if it's an intern or a partner, all ideas are valid. The other piece was that folks like Greg Pascarelli, who, who I love, who's one of the founders there, was one of the pioneers of trying to innovate how architects could capture the value they create differently. And for example, you know, many of their early projects, you know, they would uh, put in sweat equity to, to gain a, a piece of the deals, you know, that they were pulling together on behalf of their clients, right? That they would source the deal, they would put in their time, they get a small slice, they would design the thing, and they would on the, on the backside be able to effectively get a bonus. And so a lot of the work that I did with him, we were thinking about ways of, well, can we, as architects, have a real seat at the table and have more agency and be advisors and partners to our clients and really be equals and acknowledging that the risk reward and the risk profiles between an investment manager, between a developer, between an architect are very different. But architects, through good design, through strategic design, create a disproportionate amount of value that they have no ability to recoup. I could talk about shop architects and I think the influence of them for a long, long time. We got to move on from shop. And I want to talk about Lendlease. So you are head of design in the Americas for Lendlease, and you've been in that role, I believe, since 2019. Lendlease is a multinational construction real estate company. They've been around since, I believe, the 1950s, in Australia, founded in Australia. I'm curious what you would describe your responsibility as, because at the outset, I'm sure a lot of architects look at your role and say, wow, that sounds like something I would like to aspire to be, head of design for a multinational development company. But I think they probably don't have a clear picture of exactly what you do on a day-to-day basis. So typically, I mean, architects have been providing a lot of really valuable roles in construction and in real estate for forever, right? There are certain buckets, certain personas, certain role types that you'll probably find quite a bit. The first one I would say is that architects very easily and naturally can grow into a construction role where they're effectively on, they are being trained up to be project engineers, right? So they'll go and audit on job sites. They'll, you know, make sure that the drawings are being executed properly. They'll be checking, you know, they'll be doing all kinds of things relative to the translation of drawings to building and they'll be out they spend most of their time on site they're you know they're going and procuring things it's a role very well suited to someone who has a technical disposition one that spent a lot of time in producing drawings and understands the tectonics of how buildings come together or spend has spent a lot of time thinking about finishes and materials and you know suppliers and all that that's a very natural one there's another one which falls a little bit more upstream in the process, which is sort of supporting an owner's rep. 
And so that means an owner's rep is effectively someone who's acting as agent on behalf of the owner of a property or a real estate developer. They're there primarily to guide the development of a project, the design of a project from start to finish, but their emphasis is really on managing consultant teams to stay on schedule and on budget. So typically they may have a small hand in the earliest parts of buying a site and putting together a team, selecting architects, RFP, so on and so forth. The third bucket is the, probably the most rare one, which is the one that I find myself in, which is trying to assist in the thinking, the why, the what, the how. What areas are we going to build in? Why are we going to build it there? How, what is the unique value proposition of our approach of what we can deliver in this time frame in this area? Well, then who do we need to do it? What do we need to do? What about the product might be a little different, like an apartment that's bigger or smaller, uh, a building that's designed by an iconic architect or not, or the public will we'll, we'll, we'll manifest and put all the building blocks together in a very unique way that no one else has thought of, right? Unlocking value through guidance, through strategic design, through a sort of particular lens of asking the right questions. So connecting all the dots here, you know, just there's something about that approach that for certain kinds of firms that can support the overhead, meaning like someone who's expensive that isn't accountable for a specific project, but is in fact sort of there as a subject matter expert over a whole portfolio, you know, you need to be of a certain scale. So this role doesn't typically exist in a mid-sized development shop or a, you know, a design build shop or a, you know, there's all kinds of firms out there, but they don't typically have something this sort of heady and strategically focused. Big companies like WeWork kind of had a version of it. They're really more about customer experience and developing a product set that can be highly repeated, you know, the storefronts and the furniture, then F F and E packages that they design. You know, there was a, a colleague, a friend of mine, David Zai, who did that for quite a while. Um, there's other types of firms out there that, that have that kind of role, but in essence, that's a segue to the, the role that I have with LendLease. What's the hardest thing about your role that you find? Trying to build consensus, trying to influence mm -hmm. people. And it can be extremely rewarding when you feel like it's happening and it's these sort of magical, intangible moments where you feel that something that you've developed, an idea or a sensibility or a new opportunity has been, you've broken it down and it can be actionable. It's really rewarding. Where it can get frustrating and break down like anything is that you're dealing with a lot of different types of people, both internally within the organization, it's a complicated bureaucracy to say the least, and externally that you're dealing with all kinds of various customers. You're dealing with your third-party capital, you're dealing with debt, you're dealing with the end users, you're dealing with consultants, you're dealing with city. You're dealing with a lot of different people that can all throw darts and bring the whole house of cards down very quickly. So it's easy to get deflated. It's easy to get jaded by that process. But I would say that no matter how you're participating in this industry, you're experiencing in one form or another, maybe just different degrees of being insulated from the messiness of that sausage making and that backroom dealing that happens no matter what, right? It's just, it's inevitable. And so I, I try to get as close as I can to it without getting burned, which is, you know, that you want to be 
in the room helping to influence and just being as honest and transparent, never compromising on your morals or what gets you up in the morning, just really leaning into that. And people end up respecting you because they know exactly what where you are going to stand on something. They know what you what you believe in. And that, it goes a long way, ultimately. And that's how you build credibility and influence over time. So I want to pivot to 3401 South La Cienega, which is what we're going to talk about today. So this is a very exciting project that I know a lot of people are looking forward to seeing rise in Culver City. It'll have 260 units, uh, approximately of 250,000 square foot office building. I believe construction will start this year, 2023. And the building is scheduled to open to residents, I think, in 2025. This site is located in Culver. It's quite an interesting site adjacent to the La Cienega Jefferson Station on the LA Metro Expo line. Describe for our listeners what that site is like today and what they might experience. I'm not going to say walking through because it's unusual to do that in LA. But if you're driving through there, what do you experience right now? The site today, it's a three and a half acre site. It has a very unusual geometry and its adjacencies are pretty fascinating. So it is now just recently been decommissioned, but it was for a very long time a public storage site. And it has about 200 feet of frontage on La Cienega at arguably one of the hardest, busiest vehicular intersections in the city, you know, right where Jefferson and, and La Cienega come together. So people beelining from West Hollywood down to the airport, and all in between, they're using that as the sort of freeway at grade, if you will. And so it only has 200 feet of frontage, three and a half acre site, and it's nearly over 700 feet deep. So it's got one frontage, and it's very deep. And that frontage is on one of the busiest streets in the city. It is pretty interesting from a planning perspective, from a logistics perspective, lots of challenges. But the underlying real estate, the location's amazing coming on the heels of a number of developments in the area that truly are putting it on the map. And in many, way, many ways, sort of the private sector responding to the Metro's long-term efforts to try to catalyze the Metro line, you know, the Expo line, if you will, connecting downtown to Santa Monica. You know, this comes as sort of the manifestation of that long-term view, that long-term investment, which is great. Uh, there's obviously a, a very large project called Cumulus, that came online during COVID uh, just on the other side of the street with a Whole Foods and 50,000 square feet of retail. And so, and then there's the wrapper, which is designed by my old, uh, my old boss, I, I guess you could say as an intern, uh, Eric Owen Moss, uh, very, very interesting and esoteric design there. So to the West. And so, you know, it's been flanked by a number of kind of interesting developments. And then one stop over to the West, it is, full cycle really kind of realized a dramatic amount of development. Apple's uh, headquarters, HBO, Time Warner's headquarters, the Helms uh, Bakery, a number of multifamily buildings, you know, Ivy Station at large with the, you know, the, the hotel there, restaurants, Platform LA, Main Street over further, Culver Steps, Amazon Studios, you name it. There's all, there's been so much investment and influx of companies, you know, tech media, really kind of coming in that one station over. This is a little bit on the edge. It sort of belongs to that family a bit more, but it's bifur it's sort of severed from that by Hayden Tract, uh, which we touched on earlier in the conversation. It's not there yet. It's it's sort of this funky thing 
when you look and zoom out at it, it just not just the vehicular intersection challenges and really opportunity, certainly of the train, uh, the light rail, but it is sort of a product of a unique community-driven process. The CPIO, which is you know the community plan overlay, that is superimposed on this very kind of industrial area. There was all these funny things, these concessions, and that are very much related to parking and to height limitations and some of it is fundamentally antithetical to good transit-oriented development. Others are, well, in spirit, you know, they basically reduced the amount of parking one could build on these sites, and they mandated that there needs to be mixed-use development. If you're building housing, you need to build corresponding amount of another use. And so they were trying to avoid, you know, just a singular type of development, people throwing up uh, Texas donuts or five-over-twos, uh, you know, type three wood frame products. And so that's all interesting. I think what's been also interesting, there's a political environment part of this where the old council member was somehow bribed and, you know, the, the representing this district uh, was bribed to allow the development to the north. I, I might be butchering that a little, but it was a little bit of shady dealings. So there was an interesting dynamic heading into buying this in the depth of COVID. Uh, we There was absolutely no doubt by everyone involved that this is an amazing piece of real estate, amazing location, just given its centrality. You know, there's always that cliche going back to maybe even before, but this dates me a little bit. I, uh, in a guilty pleasure, I, I, I watch with my wife, the movie Clueless. And there's this thing where it says, you know, that the dad of, of, of Alicia Silverstone is like, it takes 20 minutes to get everywhere in LA. Well, obviously in 2023, that is not true, but in Culver City, it's almost true. Right. And so there's something fundamental about this location that that is worthy of believing in. But going back to the land use process, you know, that there is all this interesting stuff happening at the state level that we took advantage of to circumvent or at least shortcut the environmental review process. So we took advantage of SCIA, the sustainable communities, which had some funky provisions that mandated a certain kind of equal mix of uh, residential and commercial and on top of the underlying zoning, which mandated a similar mix, but they had contradictory measurements. So anyway, that's all getting into the sausage making of how the massing is the way that it is and the proportion of the uses are the way they are. But in effect, it's a single use multifamily building, luxury with affordable, very low income affordable and some workforce housing in there, equating to about 15% of the 260 units. And then there's what we call you know, a grade A, ideally single user sort of headquarter building akin to what Apple is uh, occupying over to the West and HBO is occupying over to the West or TikTok down in Fox Hills is, is trying to do. So we're trying to one up those in a sense in terms of the user experience, the benefits that they get. You know, there's this sort of really interesting terracing that's happening on the massing mm -hmm. and there's these ability to connect them via through tenant improvements uh, exterior stairs, not so dissimilar from one of Netflix headquarters buildings in Hollywood, um, really leveraging indoor outdoor with nano walls. And, you know, there's all these sort of building systems, MEP that is really sensitive to air changes per hour and all those sort of usual to jour kind of post COVID features and attributes. The real value proposition from my perspective, other than the fact that it, you know, you got these large, very flexible floor plates is its location and the amenitization that you have within a very short distance. So it's bike lanes, it's the transit, 
It's the fact that you have valet for parking. There's a seamlessness of getting there. And I think as we look at larger remote work, hybrid work trends and the lack of a meaningful occupancy, not vacancy in office buildings at large, that's down, but occupancy of office buildings is even further down. And in LA in particular is probably one of the worst mm-hmm. or most challenging workplace in the country and therefore the world. This building, if you really look at the data and the correlation between occupancy of office buildings and commute times, there's an obvious correlation. And I think this location, the ease of getting here relative to many of where a lot of the target users or companies and their users are, you know, their employees live, there could be a very compelling story of, you know, truly the 20 minute experience, the 20 minute city and not using that in the sense of how planners are are talking about the 15 minute city, but sort of, right? There's these little walkable bubbles in LA Mm -hmm. and this is definitely extending an existing one. So looking forward, this area to me has a lot of potential, but there's forks in the road. There will be many over the next few years where the city or developers could take a wrong turn. What do you hope this area looks like in 10 to 15 years? What do you think its potential is? I believe that there is so much potential in the immediate blocks to the south Mm -hmm. and to the east where there's sort of these haphazard, unusually shaped parcels. Perhaps there could be a concerted, coordinated, public-private development of them, or at least public support for private coordination of all the whole blocks where the, there's, I mean, this is, you know, there's a, immediately south of this, there's a Seize Candy, there's a drive-through, there's a Target, there's, you know, it's just really all over the place mixed. And I would argue Target serves a purpose, but a higher and better use would be housing, affordable housing, jobs of all kinds that you would realize a kind of mixed use development on a scale and an intentionality that hasn't been done since probably Playa Vista. So not necessarily master planned, but more intentional than what we've seen to date, which is infill kind of stuffing things within your bounds that you can all by right development, not wanting to go through a long, lengthy entitlement process, staying under things to not trigger CEQA. That kind of tactical development is at the to the detriment of the area over in the long run. And so finding ways that the city can align policy or that we can take advantage of state incentives to trigger really thoughtful, good development that is yielding coordinated development. When you look at the precinct level, it's going to be crucial. So my hope is that, right? You can't fix certain underlying things. I think there are always going to be busy streets. There's always going to be traffic. There's always going to be the inevitable that comes with development. But in this case, I think the hardware is there to support a lot more density and to really drive ridership you know, of Metro, right? If, if there is critical mass and you are able to start to connect some of these things up, it makes it convenient enough that it'll drive future investment of it. So makes a lot of sense that we'll have a sort of hopefully a virtual cycle of improvement. My working theory, so the LA Metro is a system which I have a lot of criticisms about, but my working theory is that if done right, the Olympics will be a turning point for Angelino's relationship with the LA Metro, potentially. Because right now, it's certainly an afterthought for most people when they're considering how to go from A to B. And it has to be a seismic change 
in LA in order for that to have a different perspective. So either you pull forward a system like a congestion charge like they have in London, or you yeah. there's a cultural shift that could be maybe sparked by something like the Olympics. But fundamentally, they need to design it for more capacity if it's going to be considered as a real transportation system. It's a glorified choo train, right? Let's call it what it, it is. is, right? So, so it, maybe there's other lines that are not as much this guilty of this, but the Expo line, while wonderful, it connects those those nodes. It is three cars wide, meaning you can carry what per car? I mean, fifty yeah. to max, one hundred and fifty, two hundred, three hundred people, even by a you know best guess. That is how many buses, right? That's three, four buses. I mean, you're not at the scale of like a New York City subway. You're not a, you're not meaningfully able to take cars off the road and let's say it was so attractive and convenient that it could compete with the convenience of getting in your car or it's 15 20 minutes faster from point to point as Mm -hmm. getting in your car all of a sudden everyone starts to do that this will very quickly be overburdened and the cost to build this thing who knows expensive probably to say the least the fact that it's at mixed grades right it's sometimes below grade, sometimes above grade, sometimes at grade, controlling traffic through. There's a lot of challenges with it. And I think what I would like to see is an acknowledgement that LA as a region is fundamentally different Mm -hmm. than that of London, of that of New York, that of Boston for that matter, or even Chicago, hub and spoke cities, ones that have a clear CBD. LA is polycentric. The streetcar heritage is something that clearly I think Metro is takes cues from and creating these little light rails, but it's not enough. And it certainly doesn't cover nearly the geography that you would need to have a true alternative to personal automobile traffic. And I think the best examples of maybe an alternative future where you could have meaningful shift in share would be, you know, these very dynamic, flexible, dedicated busways and you could take you know it could be the re-engineering of major boulevards east west like santa monica or venice or lincoln for that matter you know you you create a lot of disruption running down the middle of the right-of-ways but it is a way of doing it the alternative could be there's areas in the valley san fernando valley that have really truly like there are no passenger vehicles whatsoever and no basically no stoplights they can beat light rail they can beat the freeway because they have this dedicated right way and and what's nice about that is it's so much low lower cost to build to maintain you need to change your route no big deal development if you look at sofi stadium and you look at what the hollywood park has is becoming transportation planners never anticipated Mm -hmm. that so they have to retroactively spend billions of dollars and all these measures to catch up imagine if that was all busways you know, we're talking about those, I don't know if you've seen them, but those China buses, they, they look like really long multi-car. They're yep. on, you know, normal wheels. They're not on rails. You imagine those things. They could go six, seven cars, 10 cars long. Like maybe they're carrying 3,000 people per car. That That's meaningful. That's a meaningful way to get around. So anyway, that's my little like two cents on we need to not solve LA's 21st century problems with other Western European societies, 19th century solutions. Just we got to think of a different way of approaching how to how to solve transportation in, in the city. And sorry, I get on my soapbox here. I, I love this topic. 
But the other one is a balancing of land use, right? If you can create jobs where there's currently housing and housing where there are employment centers, right? Talking about downtown LA, densifying with more residential. I'm talking about historically predominantly residential burbs, being able to create little regional employment centers. That would prevent the insanity that we've seen in the scrambling of vehicular movements, right? Where there is no good time, no reverse commute time where you're jamming on the freeway. It's all bad all hours now because people are just doing crazy errands all day. And so if we can start to reorganize land use around that new distribution, making jobs accessible to where there are affordable areas and vice versa and affordable housing where it's really expensive, all of that would go a long way in reducing the need for better infrastructure. So I think this is a really good stopping point for the conversation. And I think we're, we're touching on some really, really interesting issues. I do have one final question for you, which I ask all the guests on the podcast. And it's a really simple question. What are your three favorite buildings in Los Angeles? My favorite buildings are not buildings, they're actually places. Uh, I love some of the great historic gardens of LA. So Descanso Gardens, Huntington Gardens, I would put those right up there. Then I would also put our incredible parks, state, so on and so forth, the Santa Monica Mountains. Really just our access to nature is is really, really special. That said, if I had to pick, you point a gun to my head and say, well, which buildings do I really love? I love the Bradbury Building in downtown. I love all the case study houses are incredible. I was at the Stahl House, did one of those tours. I mean, it it's even better in person. But I think, yeah, it's that tension between the individual house, you know, where I started and, and the landscape and the geography. All right. Thank you. Ryan, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. And thank you very much for joining. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. As a bonus, if you have a couple of minutes, please consider rating the podcast and writing us a brief review. We'd really appreciate it. And of course, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to email me at sam at buildinglapodcast.com. Hope you tune in again soon.